do, do, do. There we go. We have some friends here this morning to share with us. And I like when friends come to visit. Daryl's here. And every time Daryl comes, it encourages me. Because I love the work that you guys do. And I love what Thrive does. I, I went to a traditional Bible school because I was a traditional student. And I cracked open massive textbooks and I wrote massive papers. And that was okay for me. But I had friends who didn't fit that mold. They needed something different than what our school offered. And there wasn't. And then Thrive. And then I've seen how it's changed people. And Danae has been one of my best friends in our youth group for as long as I've been here. We've been to the other side of the world and back, me and Danae. Like, actually. Yeah. So when she went to Thrive and came back a completely different person, that's a Holy Spirit thing. And the Holy Spirit does stuff at that school because I believe there's faithful people doing God's work there. And God shows up. And God is gracious. So this morning, you're going to get to hear some of Danae's story. As she shares, you're going to get to hear from Daryl as he talks about the work that God does at that school. And as he talks, as he talks to you, I hope that you, you take a moment to, to be thankful for that. That the Holy Spirit is alive and well and doing things in people's lives. And it's fun to hear about it from Daryl and then to see it firsthand in Danae. The rest of the service is yours. I think you can use that mic. Can Danae use this mic? Okay. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for that awesome intro. Uh, my name is Daryl Balzer, and I lead the Thrive Discipleship Program in Hepburn. And um, I'm super excited because this is the first time I've seen Danae since April, whatever, when she left. And uh, it's our, I've already heard amazing stories. So why don't we uh, start by just, I'll just give you a few prompting questions and, and then turn it over to you. So, um, Danae, before Thrive, why don't you just share a little bit about your thoughts and sort of what was maybe going on in your life or in your mind or in your heart as you were leading up to Thrive and maybe a little bit about what triggered you to come. Yeah. Hi. Okay, it's on. Um, um, before Thrive, I was living with my parents uh, which I still am, but um, <laughs> and I was living at home. I hadn't worked since January of 2020 just because of mental health stuff. I wasn't able to, and so I was at home. It was, we were not doing so hot, <laughs> um, and I was really not in the best place. I was really depressed. Not that I'm not depressed right now, but, you know, um, and... <laughs> So I just was, I didn't really have any friends in Swift Current other than obviously Darren, who's my best friend. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I didn't have very many close friends in Swift Current because I didn't have super lots of them in school. So going out of high school, it was like not having any. So it was really discouraging to be at home with my parents, and just have family, which is good, but it's also not enough sometimes. <laughs> and so then in August, my dad and I went camping, and then he, we were talking about stuff and about people I'd been friends with in high school that I wasn't friends with anymore, and he just was like, well, you know that people that came to church like a year ago? And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, you know, like the people. We were really memorable, eh? <laughs> I did remember you. I just don't have a good memory. <laughs> um, and so I, I, he was like, yeah, it was this person. And they came and they talked about this. And I was like, oh, yeah, they came and there was four people. Yeah, whatever. And so, um, yeah. And so I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, you could go there. Like that would be a good thing. And I was like, yeah, cool. And then within three days, I have put in my application and talked to Daryl for half an hour on the phone about it. 
Um, and the, that was it. And I was in. <laughs> <laughs> it was really easy to get in, especially since my parents paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's, that's my recollection of it too. That was, um, I got the phone call out of nowhere from, I was driving home to Hepburn and my phone rang and it was uh, Danae on the other end and just had some questions and I was so pleasantly surprised and, uh, and uh, yeah, a lot of our applicants I have to pursue quite hard and I know about them through the whole stage of deciding and Danae was one of those just super pleasant gifts um, out of nowhere. So. Now, moving to while you were at Thrive, um, and you can do whatever you want with this question, but just kind of highlight a couple things of maybe what impacted you or um, just even some thoughts about your time while you, while you were at Thrive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, I went to Thrive because I wanted to have friends and build a community of believers that was not just myself and my family. Um, that were my age because most of the people who are younger in Swift Current are either in high school or married with kids or just married. So it's, there's no like group that's my age really in Swift Current because you don't stay in Swift Current for school. Like why would you do that? Um, <laughs> and so I went there for community and like within three weeks there was, um, well there was eight girls um, not including our resident director. Um, and so within three weeks, we were all so close. <laughs> and it was just really cool. And so like within, it was eight months long, within eight months, I, I had closer friends than I've ever had in my entire life. And I went to school with people for 12 years and I was not friends with them. So like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and just the, the way the program is set up just caters to building strong relationships and like godly relationships. And so like I'm in a like Bible study with like a, a couple of the girls and then one of the girl's friends from home and we have a messenger group and we read like a book of the Bible every day. And then like we have a group chat the girls do and then I just text them randomly. And there's a couple that I keep up with like daily, but like I keep up with all the girls generally. And so it, it was just so cool to be able to do that. And so, yeah. And um, I wasn't really excited about the classes. I'm not really a school person, <laughs> but um, they weren't bad, which, uh, which, <laughs> which I was very like nervous going into them because I'm really not able to like focus on things. I'm bad at like paying attention. I'm bad at participating in classes. And so I was pleasantly surprised because they're more like lectures or like, I guess, more of like a, you sit there and they talk to you more of a thing instead of like, like a high school classroom, which was awesome because I did not want a high school classroom. Um, and so, yeah, so the classes were really good. We did, um, one of my favorite classes was James Penner from Lethbridge. Lethbridge, Lethbridge. Yeah. yeah, he's yeah. from Lethbridge. And um, he taught about like youth and um, finding your passion and how to do that and how to foster passion in youth and then also in people who are older and younger. And um, that was really cool. And then another one I really liked was Leanne Schellenberg. She's from Hepburn. And she talked about worship and just living a life of worship and how it doesn't just look like singing on a Sunday, which I love, but it also is just finding God in the everyday and going through life with him and just making sure he's a part of your life and worshiping him through that. And that was really cool. Awesome. Okay, and then... Finally, since Thrive, maybe just touch on sort of 
how have you been or maybe share anything that you've that you see differently since being at Thrive and uh, you kind of already did share a little bit about the connections that you still have in the Bible study, which is awesome. But yeah, just mm-hmm. has your worldview changed or what does your outlook look like since mm-hmm. Thrive? Um, I actually, I was trying to, you sent me the questions in advance and I was trying to think of stuff in advance because on the spot, I'm really bad at that. So <laughs> um, I was actually talking to my mom and she said that I accept and ask for help more. Mm-hmm. And because I was just in that community where it was fine to do that and it was encouraged to ask for help if you needed it. And so now when I come home, I'm, I'm more willing to just text someone and say, hey, can you pray for me? Hey, you want to go for coffee? Hey, you want to do this? Hey, there was this thing that happened that this person, whatever, just talking to them. And so like, well, this last week, I got my second vaccine and I was out for a whole day. And Janelle Matthews, um, I texted my mom who was like, can I text my friends? And I was like, yes. And I was like, I just feel like such crap. And she texted Janelle and Janelle brought me food, (laughs) which was great. And Lee checked in with me throughout the day, which was lovely. And it was just so weird to have people supporting me because I'm not used to telling people that I'm not doing great. (laughs) So it's really encouraging to be able to ask for help and then receive it because you do actually have a bigger community than you think you do originally. And then um, I also was, like before Thrive, I would say my relationship with God was not really a relationship with God, I mean, I still believed in him, but it wasn't, like, personal. And now I can say that um, I know that. Um, And it is more personal. And I'm able to pray more often. And I definitely um, just am more um, confident when I'm talking about God in conversations or when I'm talking about just spiritual stuff in general because I have a little bit more knowledge now. Um, And so, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks, Danae. I really appreciate you uh, stepping up here. That's courageous. Thank you. All right. That's awesome. I love hearing stories about Thrive alumni. Um, I am so privileged to be able to uh, get a front row seat as these things are unfolding at Thrive. It's uh, the greatest job ever to, to get to watch God work in people's lives and in our group, but also in individuals. And uh, um, yeah, I just wanted to give you guys a brief report on sort of the happenings in the program right now. Um, Number one, I brought Luke Martins with me. He's sitting up here with me. Um, Just hired him in spring, so he will be beginning as the male resident director this fall. Um, Really excited. Luke's pretty much a local guy. Um, He's been on a path in his young adult life chasing God. He's been to Calgary for a while. He's part of a, a band. He's starting his own music ministry. Um, he's just a real passionate guy for God, and I'm excited to see how God uses him with our program, and him and I are meshing really well, and it's just going to be super fun. So um, there's that. Um, in terms of logistics and what's happening on campus, um, some of you know we, have, we had a huge campus that we took over from Bethany, um, like 13 acres and 80,000 square feet. And our model for the first four years was let's rent out the facility to pay the bills and then we can, we can sustain our little program if we bring in enough dollars for using the facility. Well, that was kind of working. We were able to continue to run the program and just pay the overhead and the minimal staff that we have. Um, Then COVID hit, obviously that took away all rental revenue. Um, But even more than that, we were watching the building deteriorate because as you know, if you have a big building, you can't just pay the utilities forever and ignore the building. So um, 
I convinced our board and then also the Canadian MB conference who held the mortgage that the only way out of this was to p consider selling the, the campus. And that was a scary move because um, we didn't want to give up on Thrive and we weren't ever giving up on Thrive, but we knew that selling the campus could mean we're homeless. And um, I kind of thought, so anyways, long story short, everybody gets on board. We do an appraisal, it goes up for sale. Um, we're hoping to get enough money out of it to release us from the old debt that we inherited, which was like a million dollar mortgage. I, I would estimate we had at least 500,000 in repairs that needed to be done. So I call it the $1.5 million hole we were in. And I thought it could be a year, two years till somebody comes and buys this place, but it was like a, a week and a half. And we had two offers, one from the town of Hepburn for the asking price that was gonna satisfy the Canadian conference, release us from debt. The town loves us already from our last four years being in town, um, made it possible for us to, hold, to keep one dorm, ownership over one dorm that's plenty big enough for all of our stuff. And so long story short, in a matter of, it was months coming, but in, from the time we pulled the trigger, it was like literally a month or two until boom, the $1.5 million hole is gone. We have no burden of debt, no burden of a facility that's falling apart, and we own a dorm that is plenty good enough for us, and um, just instantly we're kind of long-term sustainable because our overhead just shrunk from the six figures down to you know a few thousand bucks a year. So um, we are in a better position than we've ever been financially. We're still on the same campus, we're still in Hepburn, and we can, and the students won't even know the difference because they'll be living in the dorm and we still are gonna use parts of the, the main campus for like the classroom and things like that. So that's the big news of what happened this spring. It was a lot of work, um, but God is faithful. And um, on other news, we have 14 students signed up for this fall. Our typical enrollment, our biggest enrollment ever was last year at 18. So we're getting to be, I dare to say, consistently in the teens anyway, which is perfect for what you just heard from Danae, that's what we want. We want that intimate, close um, feeling where staff can get to know and walk alongside every single student. Um, and then we, we obviously just wanna preach God, we wanna study the Bible, we don't do a lot of extra stuff. We, it's not that fancy. Uh, we bring in sound instruction and we focus on the scripture and we teach spiritual disciplines. It's so encouraging to hear you say, Danae, that you're connected and that you're studying the Bible and and um, that's, that's gold. So yeah, that's basically what I wanted to say about Thrive. Danae says it better than me. And um, thank you for letting us come. Um, and now I'm just going to kind of transition into the message for the morning. And I hope it's, I hope it's what God has planned. Um, God has put on my heart this summer his holiness. And uh, we just finished singing that last song repeatedly, we cry holy, holy, holy. So uh, I'm gonna speak a little bit on that, but first let me pray and ask for, for wisdom. Magnificent Holy Father, we uh, praise you this morning. Uh, we praise you in good times and in, in tough times and struggles, and we are dependent on you either way. And Lord, I am dependent on you this morning. Please um, give me your wisdom, give me your words. Um, let me be true to your word, and uh, anything that I say that's not not on, I pray that no one would listen to it, and uh, and I just pray that good stuff comes from this message, and that it's what the church needs to hear, and I just thank you for this opportunity in your name, Amen. So yeah, like I was saying, there's there's a couple things that get me really fired up in my life these days. Um, Number one, just being a part of Thrive and hearing transition, transformation in, in people and seeing it as it's happening. Uh, number two, I'm a pretty big evangelism guy. Um, the most exciting moments of my life have happened in that setting where I'm seeing God move and, and reach people and people coming to faith. Um, that is a, a really exciting thing. Um, and probably thirdly, 
I was telling Luke on the way up, the most passionate, the thing that gets me the most fired up is just making sure that God is viewed as holy as he is. Um, that God is big. You can't emphasize it enough. I want people to know that God is big. So if I stumble over my words this morning, my goal is just plain and simple. I want everyone to be reminded how big and holy God is. Um, so for that, I'm going to go to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend some time reading a few passages in Exodus 19. But I'd like to give a little bit of the context of what, where we're at when we get to Exodus 19. Where is God's story at? So the Ten Commandments come in Exodus 20. Exodus 19 is Mount Sinai. But let me remind you of where God's people had come from just before arriving at Mount Sinai. They had been in Egypt for years and years and years. Years of being mistreated and treated as slaves and not being able to do what they want to do. And probably, if I think about it long enough, wondering where is God? And we've just come through a year of a pandemic, and it looks like now we're going through a year, we are going through a year of extreme famine, and these are serious things, and I am not downplaying them. And I'm hearing signs of other struggles that people are going through here just this morning. But let's think about Israel. Hundred, like, generations, not a year or two years. These people were slaves and being mistreated mistreated and beaten and abused and that's all they have ever known their their dads and moms have told them about this their grandparents this is all they've known they know nothing else and they are to remain faithful to God and we know the story of the plagues and and well first of all let me back up we know the story of how God decides to set this thing in motion he meets Moses in the wilderness in a burning bush and as always, as it seems a lot of times when God reveals himself, fire is involved. And, he, and something amazing is involved when he reveals himself. And this is no different. The burning bush that never seems to end. And Moses comes before the bush and he takes off his shoes. And they have this conversa- conversation. And, um, we, and you know, we, we start to know that God is pretty serious about himself. Tell them I am sent you. And he negotiates and says, I can't do that, and I'm, I'm not good at speaking, and, and we know that God just ends up saying, well, I gave you that mouth, so you'll be just fine. Go do what I tell you to do, and um, he goes in, and we know, and I won't cover the history, but he was on the other side of the table before this as the rich person in Egypt, and he chose to abandon it for this, and so now he's with his people, and he's in front of Pharaoh, and the plagues begin, And we get to see a little bit about what God can do when he wants to do something. We see his glory displayed through several plagues. And I'm just thinking to myself, imagine being a father of a family like I am now and being a slave and just just that constant hopelessness. And... um, and now you're seeing these plagues and you're wondering what's going Like, I can't even imagine how bizarre that would have been. And then go forward to the last night when the plague that we know actually broke the camel's back where the spirit came and it passed over. Um, imagine being a dad and Moses is telling you, okay, tonight you're going to have this special meal. You're going to kill this animal. You're going to put the blood on your doorposts. And... Uh, and you're going to wait. But you're not going to wait peacefully. You're going to have all your stuff on. You're going to have your staff in your hand, your belt done up. Um, I'm a pretty uptight guy. And I can imagine that I would have been like pacing that whole night back and forth, like looking out my window. You know, this is crazy. What, what does this even mean? They probably didn't even understand what it meant. And then the next thing I would have heard, I would have been checking my family, making sure everything's done right. Did I get the blood right? Um, and then you hear the wails and screams of people as they, in the middle of the night, I don't know, early morning, as they uncovered their oldest child had passed away in the night. And then I would have looked out into the street. First, I'd have checked my kids. 
and been relieved. And then I'd have looked out on the street and Moses is saying, it's go time, let's go, we're getting out. And can you imagine after living like this your entire life? I mean, you hear about people getting out of jail after 10 years and they can barely function. Like these people were about to experience their first taste of being able to leave Egypt freely. I mean, I would have been in the streets with my family looking over my shoulder, like wondering, is someone going to whack me over the head any second here? But no, Pharaoh's not only letting them go, he's saying, get out of here. And the people are, are out in the streets and they're giving you stuff. They're giving you riches to leave. I mean, this would have been the shock of all shocks. And then, fast forward, you're out of Egypt and you're in the desert I'm still looking over my shoulder to see what's going to happen. And, on, and lo and behold, I see on the horizon a bunch of chariots and horses and a big cloud of dust going, okay, this is, the jig is up. Is this some cruel joke you're playing with us, Moses? Like, now we're going to get destroyed by these guys. I mean, I would have been just petrified. And not only that, but there's an ocean or a sea right in front of you that's pinning you in. Um, I just can't even put my head in that space, that panic, that fear. And then we know what happens next. Just as the Egyptians are gaining on them, Moses raises his staff, and what does God do? He parts the sea and makes a big column, like a corridor with dry ground, and Moses is like, get in. Like, could you get more dramatic? I mean, you want to talk about post-traumatic stress? This is it. Like, So you're pushing your family into the sea. You're looking up at this wall of water on either side of you, and you're looking back. I mean, this is phenomenal. And then we know what happens next. Just as the last, if I'm at the very back of the pack and I'm just skipping out of the water, and I'm seeing the soldiers coming down the pike, and then boom, the water crashes down. God does this. He saves his people in the most dramatic way. Now... There are critical scholars out there that have talked about this miracle and they've actually said, no, no, that didn't happen. The Israelites crossed this thing called the Reed Sea and the Reed Sea is as shallow as, you know, just a couple feet in some places and if a wind blows, it could even get to inches. And um, so there's all these fancy critical scholars out there that are trying to say it could have happened this way and it could have happened that way. And I'm reminded of the story of the little boy that went to Sunday school. And he had one of these uh, educated uh, Sunday school teachers that morning. And so that teacher told them these different options. And uh, the little boy comes out of Sunday school and the dad says to him, Johnny, what'd you learn in Sunday school this morning? And the little boy says, oh, I learned that God is super powerful and amazing. And the dad's like, oh, good, good, that's good. Well, what did you learn about? And the little boy looks at his dad and he says, I learned that God can drown all of Pharaoh's army in six inches of water. <laughs> Man, I would have been straight to the Sunday school room to correct that teacher in a hurry. That's the stuff that gets me fired up. Don't mess with that. Anyways, right after that is when we're, in, we're getting to here now. Three months, it says, the, the Israelites were in the desert, cruising around, kind of getting used to their freedom. Um, you know, I imagine, have you ever traveled to a different province or country and actually moved, maybe moved there, and it takes a few days for you to sort of realize? You wake up each morning, and the first few seconds, you're like, where am I? Or maybe you're at college, and you're in a dorm, and you wake up, and it takes a few seconds. Can you imagine these people that are free in a desert after being slaves, I, I, I just can't, they must have needed like counseling on a daily basis, but they're free and they're wandering the, the desert and three months later, they come up on Mount Sinai and that's where we start in chapter 19 of Exodus. God, let's read the first six verses. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, 
Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So right away, the first encounter with Moses, he's reminding him what he has just done. So we often look at the old or the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we kind of isolate them, and we sometimes I think we can view them as a list of do's and don'ts, and we just sort of take them out of context and put them on the wall for our kids to learn. And it's just, it really dilutes this because God is making sure he starts by reminding them, look what I've done for you. Look what you've just been through. Perhaps weeks of plagues and then the sea and I've brought you out and you are going to be my special people. And he says, I'm going to gather you and you're going to be my treasure and my nation. And a nation needs a law. The law is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's freeing to have this law. So he's setting it up as, a, as an interaction with his people, not a list of do's and don'ts, like you don't do this and you don't do that. It's like a, 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 it should invoke worship because of, it's a redeeming story. So let's jump down to verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So now he's setting the ground rules with Moses and saying, go back there and tell the people to get ready. You're beginning to see God's seriousness about his holiness. He won't even let anyone touch the mountain and live. This is how serious God is about his holiness. And he's also asking them to spend two, three days preparing themselves for this encounter. Clean yourselves. You are about to be encounter me. Get ready. It's a big deal. I mean, this is the story of God interacting with people ever since the garden, folks. When Adam and Eve sinned and they got escorted out of the garden, there was a guard, an angel, with a flaming sword put there to sort of acknowledge the separation that the sin has now brought between God and man. It's not his ideal, but this is the consequence. And so this is just more elaborating on that. Now let's read in 16. Now we're on the, on the day after the consecration has taken place. And can you imagine um, the way you would feel as one of these Israelites, it's still only three months. It's all pretty fresh. It's like it happened in spring. We just got out of jail, the only one we've ever known. We crossed the sea, and now we're going to go and up to this mountain, and there's all this mist and rumbling on the mountain, and God's told us to get ready but not touch the mountain. Um, I think I'd be back to my pacing self for sure. On the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So you wake up that day, the mountain is rumbling, there's lightning and thunder and a loud trumpet and Moses is like, go on, get up there. (laughs) Uh, Don't touch the mountain, but get up there. I mean, I think, again... I'd have my kids huddled around me and I'd be like inching up to the mountain. Um, I, I mean, this is like the manifestation of God in trembling. And it says that the people were trembling. 
This is the holiness of God on display, folks. He is serious about himself. This, I think sometimes in our churches, you know, we, uh, we get a little casual. We, we perhaps forget about the holiness of God in our culture, and maybe not our churches specifically, but in our culture, our Christian culture. Um, you know, R.C. Sproul wrote in his book, The Holiness of God, that there's only once in sacred scripture that there is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. In other words, only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession, just like we sang. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. It never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. It only says that he is holy, holy, holy. And then we see the effort that God put forth to make sure that his people realize that you cannot come onto this mountain. And then he says, get ready. And then he calls them out. All the while saying, you are going to be my special people. But he's emphasizing his holiness. Let's read on in 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Wow. Now we have fire and smoke and thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. That's an interesting term, break out. So God warns Moses that if you don't honor me and and take my holiness seriously, a breakout will occur. I think of breakout, I think of a fight or a war breaks out, a prison breakout, a pandemic. But he's talking about himself breaking out against his people if they don't take his holiness seriously. Finally, verse 25 and into chapter 20. So Moses went down to the people and told them, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And so on and so on. And I won't read the Ten Commandments. But even before he actually gets to the point of giving them the Ten Commandments, one more time he reminds them, Remember, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is a story of salvation and redemption and worship. Get ready to worship me. Get ready to be my special treasured possession. And, you know, so it's just so important, I think, for us as a church to be reminded because I can assure you that Scripture tells us the nature of God has not changed one bit since that day on Mount Sinai. The same God we sang to this morning is that God that we're reading about right now who says all these things about himself. Now, you might be sitting in the audience right now and saying, okay, but what about the New Testament and what about Jesus? We got Jesus, and you're right. We do have Jesus, and I'm not going to tell you otherwise. But I want us to look at a couple of examples from the New Testament to back this up. So in Mark chapter 4, this is a very, very common story that everyone knows. It's the story when Jesus calms the storm. Now the Sea of Galilee is a sea that is famous for its storms. I've read a little bit about it even today. There's this interesting phenomenon that um, because it's between the desert in Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea that there's some sort of a wind tunnel that forms over the Sea of Galilee. And even today with our modern boats there's lots of caution about going out on the Sea of Galilee at right times and being prepared. 
So it's not uncommon for storms on the Sea of Galilee. And we read about it in Mark chapter 4 here, um, verse 35, that the disciples had piled in with Jesus into a boat. And these are, many of these disciples have pretty much grown up on the Sea of Galilee. These are professional fishermen. They are hardened, experienced fishermen. And it says that they got on the boat on that day when evening had come. He said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So we have the disciples on a boat, the professional fishermen that are tough and have been through many storms on a sea. So we know, and we know by the description that the waves were crashing in and filling the boat. And you know, it takes a lot to make a professional fisherman run to a rabbi in the, in the stern of the boat and say, we're dying. So we know that they've reached the conclusion that, that there's nothing they can do. There's no changing the sails or bailing anything out. They have reached complete panic. And that's just what we do as people. When we have a leader and we're in panic situation, we run to the leader and say, hey, hey, don't you care? Like, what's going on? So that's, that's where we're at in this story. These hardened professional fishermen have panicked and reached the end of their lives in their own minds. So they are very afraid. And then they come to Jesus, and he's asleep on a cushion. And um, I hesitate to say it this way, but don't you hate people like that that can just be in a situation like that, and they're chill? I do. I mean, or if they're on a traveling for all day on a train or a plane, and there's all this turbulence, and, and you look over, and you're dying, and you look over, and you see someone getting like a full night's sleep, and you're just like, ah, oh, I'm so mad at that person. I think that's what I would have first said, like, Jesus, wake up. What are you doing? And then help. And that's what we see them do. They wake them up and they say, don't you care that we're dying? We're at the end of our life. And then we find out a little bit about Jesus. Some pretty awesome stuff. Because the very next thing we read is what he actually does. He wakes up and he rebukes the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So I can't, again, let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of the panicking disciples, waking up Jesus. He's a rabbi. He doesn't know how to work a boat. Um, but they're desperately helping, asking him for help. Don't you care? I don't even think they expect him to help, honestly. I think they're just waking him up saying, don't you care? And the God of all creation, the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all, issues a verbal command not to man, but to impersonal forces of nature. Peace be still, and instantly the cosmos listened to him. And the sea turns to glass. And I can just imagine the disciples, like, how could that happen? We're from crashing waves to glass, and maybe, I don't know, the wind would have stopped immediately, I would have guessed, but maybe the waves took a, few, a minute or two, but like almost immediate relief as soon as he speaks. Now, if that happened to me, I can only imagine that my emotions would have gone from extreme fear to like calm and just like letting out a big sigh. And then I would have been, the next thing would have been like, who do I high five? Like, or who do I hug? Like, I'd have been like grabbing the disciples like, did you see that? Like, just like the biggest smile on my face, high fives, probably throwing each other into the water now, like, woohoo! And... So what's really remarkable about this story is the very next part of the passage because it's, for me, completely unexpected. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And the scripture here says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we, have, we find here the opposite reaction to what you would expect. Nobody was high-fiving. Nobody was hugging. Nobody was even cheering. Their fear went from here, I'm going to die, to higher, 
when they, were, when they realized they were in the presence of the Holy One. And that's what happens when people that are unholy get into the presence of someone that is holy, the one that is holy, God. So these brave fishermen were panicking, and then they had more fear when they got saved. I don't know about you, but I think that tells me something about Jesus having the same holiness and the same power and the same awe that we read about back in Exodus chapter 19. I mean, these, these disciples, they just had no category in their brain for this Jesus who they at this point thought was a man who was pretty cool and like was smart. But, you know, we all have categories for people or we all kind of have this ability to put people in, almost subconsciously into like, or if you meet a new person, okay, this person seems nice and this person, I don't know if I want to talk to that person. And, but these guys were just rattled when they saw this. Now, one more time, I want to tell you a story, and then I'll be done, because I really want to drive this point home. This is a story of another famous one that happened on the water. When Peter was called as a disciple, he was on the boat fishing, if you remember, and Peter had been fishing all night long and throwing his net in the water every which way, and Peter had not yet become a disciple. He had probably known about Jesus I mean, word was spreading about Jesus, maybe. Um, But right now, all Peter cared about was that he needed to make some fish or find some fish so he could make some money and provide for his family. And he'd been doing that all night. I don't know if any of you, maybe that's going to be the farmer's story this, this year. Toiling and investing and breaking their backs to provide and earn money and getting nothing or almost nothing in return. And this is Peter's problem on this day. He'd been out all night fishing, not one fish. And he's just coming back into the shore to call it a night. And he's probably thinking to himself, I can't believe I have to go home to my family or to my wife and say, I have nothing. And I don't know if any of you men have had that opportunity or not an opportunity, that really tough moment where you have to say, I don't have what I said I would have, or I don't, I'm not able to provide today. And this is what, what Peter is, is faced with in this morning. And this story happens in Luke, but I'm not going to go there. I just want to tell it. So, this is Peter. He's at this point. He's probably really angry. What we know about Peter is that he's a passionate guy, and he says what's on his mind, um, probably to his fault in many occasions, and I can relate to that. Um, and he's just probably cussing under his breath, pulling, giving up for the last time, pulling his nets in, and he sees, or he hears on the shore, Jesus yelling out, Hey, Peter, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And can you imagine his reaction to that? It, maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. Like, he probably is, he's a Jew, and he's respectful, so he probably didn't say anything negative, but he's probably just inside going, Who the heck is that telling me to put my net on the other side of the boat? And then he looks and he sees it's a rabbi who's probably never fished a day in his life. And I don't know what was going through his mind, but clearly Peter had given up all hope and was open to any suggestions because nobody, I don't know why he would throw it in, but he was at the end of his rope. And we all know what happens next. Peter throws the net on the other side of the boat, which I'm sure he had thrown it out on all night long, dozens of times, back and forth. And the next thing that happens is every fish in that sea jumps into the net in a matter of a moment. And so much so that the other boats had to come like paddle over and like get over there and help him with their nets because he was sinking. So he goes from nothing to winning the fish lottery. Like if it'd be like you on your, you're about to not be able to pay your SAS power bill and then you win a million dollars. Like this is what happened to Peter in a moment. And Peter is a Jew, and he's a businessman, and I don't know about you, I I used to be a CFO, I'm a chartered accountant, and I've hung around a lot of CEOs and business people, and I'm surprised Peter didn't just go, um, while he's pulling in his fish, Jesus, Jesus, just just stay there, Um, I have a contract in my my hand here, Um, you're going to sign it, we'll be 50-50 partners, you give me six minutes a month, and we'll both be rich. 
Because you just come down here one Saturday a month and tell me where to throw my net, and we're good. That's what I would have been doing if I was a feeder as I was pulling in the hall. Like, don't go anywhere. But the miracle, again in this story, is that the completely opposite reaction happens. If you know the story, you know that when Peter finally did get to the shore, he fell at the knees of the Lord Jesus, and he asked him to depart from him. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter, who had just won the lottery because this man told him where to throw the net, was not celebrating, was not thinking about his future benefit or what he had just earned. He was thinking, please leave. You are much too holy for me. I'm a sinful man. So do you see what happens when one who is holy comes into our presence? We become dreadfully aware of our unholiness and we can't stand the heat. When the light comes, the darkness cannot stand in its presence. You know, the good news is that when Peter said, please leave, Jesus didn't. Jesus' response was, to Peter's everlasting joy, Jesus says, and I'm not going to take you up on that. Um, I can see that you're burdened and you're heavy laden, and I'm going to give you peace because you're mine. Again, what, a, what an amazing story to show that God is so separate from us, yet he calls us by name. So you're probably thinking, why are you telling us this? Because why are we so focused on these things that separate us from God? Well, I'm not telling us this this morning, you guys, to, to think about our separation from God. I'm telling it so that we are amazed that we get to be in the presence of God and we get to talk to God as though he is our father. It is true that we have Jesus and that Jesus is our great mediator and that Jesus, because of Jesus' work, we're cloaked in righteousness, and so we can talk to God. But we saw that there is a major preparation to go before God if it weren't for Jesus. And so isn't it great just to, to relish in that, the hugeness of God, the power of God, the complete otherness of God. He is so other than us. The, the, the chasm between us is infinitely large. I can't say enough words. I could stand here all week trying to come up with words to point out how different God is than us and how far apart we are in our holiness and our sin. And yet, he crosses that gap and he gives us Jesus. That's why I'm telling you that. I mean, and if we could go on, there's a whole other sermon because First Peter, the man we just talked about, he didn't even get into his book more than like a minute where he's talking about how we need to be holy. Peter says... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be sober-minded. Get ready. You shall be holy, for God is holy. He quotes God. So we know that Peter's encounter here had an impact on him and that he wrote, we need to be holy. But right now I'm just focusing on the fact that we should be in awe and never forget the holiness of the God we worship and our unholiness and yet the gift of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says, if Jesus Christ shall be a perfect mediator between God and man, he must be able to come to God so near that God shall call him his fellow, and then he must approach to man so closely that he shall not be ashamed to call him brother. And this is precisely the case with our Lord. He's, so, he's equal to God, but yet humble enough to call us brother. I mean, praise God. So, be encouraged, but yet be remembering, remember as we pray and as we do anything, how blessed we are and the amazing grace. That song just comes to me when I start thinking about this stuff, like amazing grace that God would, you know, turn his face to me, a sinner. The apostles say that the first fruits of justification is peace with God and access into his presence. So the moment you repent and put your trust in God, the very first thing that comes from that, the good thing that comes from that, 
is that you get peace with God and you get access to him. So they highlight it over and over in the scriptures how amazing it is that we have access to God. And you know, this is what I care about at, at Thrive. I care about our students that often come in with Jesus being this you know, little guy on their shoulder, not by any fault of their own, but they're just, that's how they view God. He's this guy on their shoulder that he walks around with them and you know, once in a while when I need help, I'll pray to him and you know, I'll probably say sorry to him once in a while and recommit my life to God to make sure I'm saved and all these silly little things that don't reflect the reality of God. And I, I just want them to come out of Thrive realizing this hugeness of God. And I want that for the church and everybody I encounter to just be pointed to the bigness of God, um, his holiness, our smallness, our unworthiness, our brokenness, and then be amazed that he crosses that gap. A famous speaker said, the perfection we do not have, Jesus provided. The judgment we do not want, Jesus bore. So folks, there's no escaping the holiness of God. We all have to deal with it at some point. My desire is that we as a church and as a group of disciples that thrive, submit to the lordship of Christ and all that he has and all that he has done becomes ours. And the worst storms of divine wrath that you can imagine are silenced forever. And that's, that's it. Darren. It's, it's no coincidence. Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. This is the throne room. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed. By your will they were created. Holy, holy, holy. That is the presence of God where true worship is taking place. And John gets a glimpse of that and writes that down. That is what's going on. So they get access to something that we are just getting a taste of. How beautiful is that? And one day we're going to sing those songs and say those words in his presence. Is that exciting, church? That's exciting. That's exciting. Thank you, Daryl, for coming to share. And thank you, Danae, for sharing some of your story, too. I'm going to pray before we go. And as I pray, I want to encourage you to go say hi to Daryl, say hi to Luke, encourage them, go ask questions about Thrive. We're going to take a break so everyone can relax for a few minutes. Then uh, once we're all done visiting, we'll bring you back in here. Those who want to help with our little congregational meeting. We're going to vote on some of our church leaders for the fall so that we can get them into their ministries. So let's pray together before we go. Oh, Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that every time we step into this moment of prayer, um, it's access into this throne room that we don't deserve to even have the doors opened to us. And only one person we know has seen the inside of the throne room and wrote it down. And what he writes down is that this is the worship in that, in that space. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One day, Lord, we get, to, we get to enter into your presence, join your wedding feast, sit at your table, uh, dwell in your kingdom. But until that day, we just humbly wait and we worship you from afar, the broken vessels that we are, covered by Jesus, desiring to live righteously for you a perfect and set-apart holy God. Oh, you're so good. You are so, so good to us. We don't deserve it, not even a piece of it. All of this, Lord, is, uh, is our great desire to love you and make you known to everyone. So I pray a blessing, Lord, over our church family as we go about our work and our week and our mission. I pray this, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Amen, everyone.